Morning, my name's Dave, um, as Dan just told us. Um, I'm part of the leadership team here at the church. And Dan can have his bag back. Um, <laughs> so this morning I've been asked to speak about that psalm, uh, Psalm 40. And it's a fantastic psalm, I think. Um, and I want to say just at the beginning, it's a psalm about uh, David, a couple of times at least, um, finding himself in a really difficult place finding himself in some pain and some suffering and in a, in a hopeless place. Um, and I want to say just at the start, I, don't, I suspect we've all felt situations like that to different degrees in our lives. Um, and I don't want to give trite answers to difficult um, problems that we might face. Actually, as I was sort of researching and thinking about what I might say this morning, I feel like some of the commentaries that talk about this psalm are a little bit too quick to turn that psalm into like a four-point plan to your life being wonderful. If you do the things David did, then, you know, problem solved. Um, and I think we're a little bit quick to do that. Um, I actually think the Psalms, and Dan talked about this last week, um, are just this really honest account um, from somebody. This really honest account. It's almost like reading somebody's diary. It's some songs about David's struggles. It's some songs about his joy. It's some songs about the way he feels like he interacts with God. It's some songs about who he thinks God is. It's just this really honest, transparent, open account of David's struggles and joys and understanding of God. Um, and I just want to say at the start, I think, let's not try and turn it into a four-point plan too quickly. Let's try and mine it for, I think there's some really deep things to learn about the character of God and the nature of God through some of these Psalms. Um, as I was um, preparing for this talk, um, I was uh, talking to lots of people about what they thought about this psalm. And um, a few people pointed me in the direction of some different things to read and some different things to listen to. Um, and actually, I ended up listening to um, a Rob Bell podcast. Um, it's one of those Robcasts. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Um, but Robcast, and it was Rob Bell and Pete Rollins. Um, and it's called, and I would encourage you to go and listen to it because it's fantastic. It's called God Part One. And there's obviously a God Part Two as well. Um, and... In this podcast, um, and I think this is important, and, um, Rob and Pete Rollins were just talking around different ways you can view God, different ways you can talk about God, um, and sort of um, went around a, a load of different ways you can talk about God. And I want to start just by, I'll do this in a really bad way because it's really deep, but um, just covering a few of those things, um, because I think actually we can learn loads about God through the Psalms, but I think also our preconceptions of who God is and our current understanding of who we think God is and how God operates actually is a bit of a lens for us as we read the Psalms. Actually, we read them in different ways depending on what's going on in the first place. So I just want to cover, just they were talking about these four different ways you could talk about God. So here's the first one. They talked about God as being a super being, as God being just a projection of me or you. God being, if I know stuff, God is all-knowing. If this is my understanding of justice, then God's understanding must be pretty similar, just a God version. If this is how I see revenge happens in the world, where well, God must operate in that same way. Um, and sometimes we take God and we just project ourselves and blow God up to be a super mega version of ourselves. Um, there's a really good Karl Marx um, quote that they, they talked about, and they said when we talk about God... Actually, Karl Marx, Karl Barth quote, and when we talk about... <laughs> When we talk about God, um, we talk about ourselves just with a megaphone. Um, and I think that's a really good quote, isn't it? Um, sometimes God can become um, the entity that justifies all the things we already thought. He's just a God version of the things we already thought. 
Um, and Pete Rollins was saying, actually, we should treat God not so much as a projection of ourselves, but he used the word projectile. God should be the challenger of the things we think. God should sometimes smash the things we think and say, I know you thought it was like that, but actually it's like this. God should be a critique of the things we think as opposed to just justifying the things we already thought. So that's the first one, God being a, a super being, just a projection of myself. Second one, they talked about a mystical understanding of God, God being a hyper being. So God being that which you can't fully conceive, beyond conceptualization. They talked about a God that was so different and so big and so diverse that we couldn't possibly put it in a box. And Dan last week was talking about Psalm 8 and was talking about some of that, wasn't it? A God that created the universe and Dan went into that GCSE lesson on, maybe A-level lesson on the stars and how many there are in the sky and all of that stuff. Just the bigness of God that we can't possibly get our hands around. And so if God is a bit like that, then we have to use language, don't we, to try and describe God. And we all describe God from our perspective. And we all use metaphors to try and understand who God is and what God's like and how God operates. Um, and I wonder whether that's a good way of looking at the Psalms, actually. Different perspectives, different language. It's not quite perfect. It doesn't really sum it up because God is beyond conceptualization. Um, sometimes that language is discordant. Sometimes, you know, that metaphor doesn't quite work with that metaphor. Sometimes that piece of language over there doesn't really match up with what somebody else said over here. But together, as we take it as a whole, we get a, a broader, fuller understanding of a God that is difficult to conceptualize. So that's the second one. First one, super being. Second one, hyper being, a God that's um, beyond um, what we can sum up. The third one, they talked about God being the source of everything. God being that which sets everything, um, uh, you know, everything that arises sets it off. Um, and they were saying that if God is like that, well, perhaps we find God best when we throw ourselves into the world. We find God when we love other people. We find meaning when we throw ourselves into the world. Um, there was that quote two weeks ago when I was talking, that Martin Luther King quote, got that one right, Martin Luther King quote that was um, saying, um, if a man doesn't find out what he's prepared to die for, he isn't fit to live. That idea of throwing yourself into the world and you'll find meaning and you find God in the mix of that. So God as the source. And then the fourth one, I didn't, they talked about it as God as event. I don't know quite what the title means, but God being the God that encourages, pulls us, draws us to be better, to be more loving, to be more freedom orientated, to be more merciful, to be more hospitable, to be more gracious. And Pete Rollins talked a bit about there being nature, the nature of the world and the way things operate, gravity pulls things off trees and they hit the ground and there's the sort of natural order of the way our world works. And for us, there's the natural way in which sometimes we are sort of tuned to respond to the world. And perhaps God is that entity that draws us to be bigger and better than that, respond in a different way, respond in a more gracious way. So there are those four ways, super being, hyper being, God as the source, God as that which draws us to be bigger and better. Um, and then two other things I want to say before we sort of delve into the content of the psalm. One is, as we're reading this, I think, as I was reading this, my lens about how much I think Christianity and my understanding of God is this sort of individual contract. So I do some stuff, you know, God helps me out a bit, God's pleased with me, I praise God. It's all like this sort of individual contract between me and God, one extreme. The other extreme, God is communitarian and God, we're part of and agents of God's plan to bring the kingdom of God on earth for everybody. I think depending on quite where you put yourself on that scale as well, 
um, actually is a bit of a lens for how you might interpret some of the things that are said in this psalm. So there you go. Super being, hyper being, God as the source, God calling us to this bigger betterness, um, and then that sort of individualistic communitarian thing. And I just encourage you to just keep those in your head as we think about this psalm. So to just recap of the structure, it's quite a long psalm that Daniel read to us, um, but there are sort of two chunks to it, really. Um, at the top, David's talking about an event in his life which was difficult. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I was in the slimy pit. God helped me out of a slimy pit and put me on solid ground, and I praise the Lord for it. And he goes on to talk about all the different ways he praises the Lord for having done that. There's a whole piece in the middle, which I'll come back to in a moment, about what God expects. Does he want sacrifice? Does he want us to be, have his law in our heart? Um, and then the second half of this psalm is David is back in problems again. So David talks about his sinful nature and having got back into a difficult place and he's crying out to God and he's crying out saying, like, I want you to do something about it now. The final verse of that slide says, do it quickly, do it now, come quickly. And there's this really great sort of, um, uh, I don't know, thrust, impatience, like crying out really earnestness to this whole psalm as you read it through, I think. Um, and the first real point I want to make um, is um, that I think this psalm talks about God that isn't angry with us. Um, I don't know whether you saw during the week, um, there was this fairly grisly story on the news, actually, but it was a story about um, a mountain in Greece called, uh, I think this is how you pronounce it, Lycaon in Greece. Um, and Lycaon in Greece is uh, the mountain um, that is in the myths um, where Zeus is thought to have been born. It's uh, Zeus ended up being the, the king of the Greek gods, um, is thought to have been born on this mountain. And this week in the news, they found um, the skeleton of um, a young man, I think, on, on the uh, hillside there. And the reason it came up in the news was because um, there's stories in, in the legends and myths about the Greek gods um, where people were offering sacrifices to the gods. And it said that in this particular mountain, because it was used, they were sacrificing animals and they were also sacrificing human beings. And this was the first time they'd actually found evidence that that might be true. Nobody really knew whether that was true or not. And this was the first time they'd found that evidence. Now, remember, the Greek gods are all about magnificence and majesticness and powerful. Um, and they're also impetuous. So human beings have to live with Greek gods that are sometimes happy, sometimes excited, sometimes sad, sometimes angry, sometimes... And in effect, the Greek gods take out their whims on human beings beneath them. And really, human beings have to be careful of the gods. They have to appease the gods. They have to make sure that they don't do the wrong things, because if they do, the gods will smite them. So on this mountain in Greece, there were people sacrificing things to the gods because they were worried that if they didn't do things in the right order, at the right time, with the right religious ceremonies. If they didn't appease the gods, the gods would smite them. If they found themselves in difficulty, it's because the gods were angry with them. However, in this psalm, David says something really different about God. He doesn't say that God is angry. Actually, David talks about having got himself into trouble because of his sinfulness. There's this great bit in the middle. Let me just read it back to you. It says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I've come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is in my heart. David's saying, this God is different. 
I understand God to be different. He doesn't need appeasing. He doesn't need sacrifices. He's not going to get us if we do stuff wrong. It's not like that. It's not the way we might have operated with Greek gods in the past. This God doesn't operate like that. He doesn't need sacrifices and appeasing because he's going to be angry at us if we get it wrong. I think David's saying God is not an angry God. Um, And you've probably heard Steve talk a bit, and I I think it says this in the passage, but about sin being its own punishment. Um, So if you take sin to be just operating in a different way to that which God suggests and encourages us to live, sometimes when we do that, we get ourselves into difficult places, don't we? I know I've done this in my life, I guess, that we probably all have. When we deliberately go in the other direction, we get ourselves into difficult places. Sin is its own punishment. Sometimes other people's sin gets us into difficult places. Sometimes we just live in a broken world and terrible things happen, don't they? But I think if we keep that concept of, and I think David's talking about this, I got myself into this place because of my sinful nature. This is not God smiting me for doing things wrong. So then he goes on and says, oh, if God doesn't want sacrifice, this is not an angry God, but I've got the law of God in my heart. I think it's talking to us about God wanting us to be obedient. God wants us to be obedient to him. Why? Well, because he's a good God. It's not because we'll be obedient to him and that sort of flatters God. It's not God saying, do this stuff just because I said. Like, God wants us to do this stuff, wants us to be obedient to him, because he thinks it's in our best interest and all of our best interests together to be like that. He's telling us, this is the point of life, be like this. And so in other parts of the Bible, we get definitions of what that looks like, you know, being faithful, humble, kind, being, you know, other-centered, being sacrificially loving. Why do this stuff? Because it flatters God? No, do this stuff because God is saying, this is in all of your best interests to be like this. So my first point is, God is not an angry God. God is not out to get you if you get stuff wrong. God is actually a good God. And that good God says to us, Be obedient because it's in your best interest to be obedient, all of you together. And I just want to pause there because I guess there are also times when it might feel like we did the obedient thing, we did what God asked of us, and it still didn't work out great. And a couple of weeks ago I was talking, um, the sermon topic that I was talking about was, you know, do good things always happen to good people? And the answer was, from my perspective, no, that's not always the way it works. Um, And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Mother Teresa. And, you know, at the end of her life, they published those um, uh, writings about that she'd been talking with her spiritual advisors about her interaction with God over the years. And there were those really honest writings about Mother Teresa feeling like she was being obedient. She was crying out to God. She was trying to do the right things and yet felt that distance from God. There were moments in her life when she felt real closeness and real connection with God. But there were also many years up until the point where she died where she didn't feel that connection with God. It doesn't always work out that you do the obedient thing and that will necessarily and well for for you personally. Um, And sometimes you might end up in a difficult place. And two weeks ago, we talked about lots of the warnings in the New Testament, actually. Jesus saying to people, if you do this stuff, you know, I really want you to do it. I encourage you to do it. But it will lead us down a difficult road. But let's do it anyway. Um, so I think there's that tension built into the mix of this. Um, the first line of this psalm is a really famous one. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And lots of the commentary said that that's quite a bad um, translation of the Hebrew words. 
because um, it makes it sound really passive, doesn't it? It's like I waited patiently for the Lord. I sat on my hands and waited patiently. And actually the Hebrew word waited there is like the emphatic version of that word. Um, so actually a better translation would be I waited, I waited, I waited for the Lord. And some English translations do put it in several times to make that point. This is a really active waiting for the Lord. This is not passive, I'll sit on my hands and wait for things to happen. This is like, I really desperately, desperately want something to happen and I'm going to do stuff about it myself. I think there's a lady who I work with um, in Oasis called Ruth and she runs Stop the Traffic. Um, Stop the Traffic's an anti-human trafficking campaign. Um, And obviously Ruth and her team are, you know, trying to end human trafficking around the world. And there are these grisly stories they get into of terrible things happening to people people being sold into slavery and I know that Ruth is crying out for that to end she's crying out for that to stop she's actively waiting for that to stop and while she's actively waiting she's doing stuff about it she's doing stuff she's encouraging other people to do stuff she's saying I'll be different how do I change my life so this stops and she said to God I wait I wait I wait do it now do it now end it now And when I look at Ruth, I see somebody who is just actively waiting. And I wonder whether in this psalm, it's that sort of do it now, do it now, do it now. And that really active sense of this psalm. The second thing I would say about it is I wonder whether there's a sort of sense of a, a skipping record in this psalm. That David's stuck in a pit and he's feeling hopeless and I guess I've certainly felt like this in my life, you you probably have too, where you're just stuck in a situation that just, you go round and round and round and it feels hopeless and it feels there's no way out. And it's a bit like the record is skipping. The needle just keeps skipping back round the same tune. Skipping, skipping, skipping. And I wonder whether there's a sense in which when David says, and God help me out of the pit, it's almost like God giving him the liberating air to be able to get out of that loop, lifting the needle and moving the needle so he can sing a different song. Um, I went on a a coaching course a couple of weeks ago, and I've got to say, I went on this course feeling a bit cynical about uh, coaching. I wasn't expecting it to be that much fun, honestly, so I disappeared off on this course, and I thought the point was, you know, you sit there, and as long as you ask open questions, you know, job done. Um, (laughs) And so I went on this course, and they, it was really good, actually. I really enjoyed it. And they taught us a load of skills. Um, and they were talking, talking to us about a coach's job is not there to offer advice and solutions. A coach's job is there to work with somebody to hold a space and allow people to investigate their own solutions to challenges and also to direct people towards the future. And they talked to us about this particular tool of asking hurdling questions, they called it. Um, so you'd sit there and you'd have your coaching session and you'd, you could talk about whatever you liked, but often people talked about challenges and things they wanted to solve and they sort of went around the problem and you could see them going around on that skipping loop of the record, skipping round and round and round. And a coach's job, one of the techniques they taught us was to ask a sort of hurdling question and to say, I've heard all of that, I, I get it, I, I really do understand all of that stuff, but just for a moment, just... Imagine that that challenge wasn't there. What would the future look like if that challenge wasn't there? What would you love it to look like instead? And it was fascinating, actually. I've never really seen this before, just to watch people's outlook change. Like, all of a sudden, they were given the permission to dream about the future, and people would put down that just for a moment and say, 
oh, I'd really love it if it looked like that. Yeah, I mean, what I'd really like is if it was this, this, and this. I mean, it'd be great if we could do that and that. And you could just see people shift for a moment and start to dream about the future and were given the ability just to feel like they could fantasize about the future, in effect. And that didn't mean the problem went away. It didn't mean that that challenge wasn't there. But it did give people sometimes the air to breathe, to be able to go back to that challenge and say, actually, yeah, I, I could change that a little bit, or I could do that slightly differently. Or if I did this, yeah, maybe I could alter that. And it was fascinating to watch, actually, that give people the moment to breathe and to dream about the future. And actually, sometimes they've got the air to be able to do something about the challenge they're in. And this is the bit that I hope doesn't sound trite, because you don't want to write off pain and suffering and you know, say, it's, it's not that hard, is it? Just do this and it'll be fine. Pain and suffering can smash us into a million pieces sometimes, can't it? Um, but I wonder whether there's a sense of God sometimes providing that air, that perspective, to be able to just hurdle the issue slightly so that you can begin to dream a bit about the future. I wonder whether God says to David when he's talking about the law in my heart, I wonder whether it's, yeah, but David, remember, you're part of a bigger story, a bigger, deeper story than you can possibly imagine. Remember that you're part of a story that's about mercy and about love to other people. Remember that you're part of a story that's about offering people freedom now, that doesn't make your problem or your challenge go away, but remember those big things about you being part of this big, deep story. And I wonder when David's crying out to God about that, I wonder whether David's beginning to understand some of that and to start getting a little bit of perspective so that he can, has got the liberating space to be able to make some changes. Um, yesterday, Rob Bell was here for a day and there were 300 people in this room and he was talking a little bit about um, some of these issues. Um, and he said a couple of things. One, he said, you know, when you're in those difficult places, you write your big long list of all the challenges and all the problems. But remember, that's only some of the list. That's not the full list. What about all the good stuff that is still there? He kept encouraging people to write the full list, not just the challenge list. You know, what is the full list? And he said this, um, I, actually, I didn't quite hear this session, but somebody told me this little um, phraseology he was using. He was saying, when we're in those difficult places, we've got a choice to some extent. We can try and make it disappear. We can try and bury it. We can run away from it. Or actually, we can begin to understand that there is learning opportunities in that. We can run towards it. And he said, it can either make you bitter or better. And he went on to say this thing, which I've heard him say several times, about um, transcending a problem and then including it. He was saying, don't try and make it go away. What you've got to try and do is get a little bit of air to have some perspective on it so that you can stand above it slightly and then include it in the story of who you are. It doesn't go away. You can't get rid of it. It is there. But perhaps you can include it in who you are as you move forwards. And so my point here really is, I wonder whether God interacts with David a bit like that and provides him this liberating air to suddenly breathe for a second and have a bit of perspective on the situation he's in so that he can lift the needle and move it on to the next track. And there's also this fascinating in here, and I think this is just such a human thing, this sort of yo-yo experience of, God, I'm going to be faithful. What's David being faithful to? That God's just going to zap his problem and take it away and it'll have gone? 
no, I think David's being faithful to God saying the point of life is freedom and it's liberty and it's justice and it's serving other people and it's being other-centered. I think David's saying, I'll faithfully trust that that is the point of life. I'll faithfully do it, but God, how long am I going to have to wait for this? How long? And there's this sort of yo-yo between, I'll be really faithful, but how long, God? And there's this crying out of faithfulness and how long, God? And I think that's just such a human experience. We've sung some words that sound a bit like that in the songs we sang this morning. So to summarize the, the few things I'm trying to say this morning is one, I think this psalm talks of a God that's not an angry God. God isn't God is not out to get us when we do stuff wrong. God hasn't put David in the slimy pit. Either David's managed to get himself there, or perhaps other people have managed to get him there, or perhaps he just lives in a broken world and some terrible stuff's happened. This is not God getting him for the things he's done. God's a good God. And that good God says to David, have your law in my heart. I don't want sacrifices, I don't want offerings, I don't want burnt offerings. I want your law to be in, my law to be in your heart. Be, do these things, be obedient to me because I think it's in all of your best interest to be like that. It's the point of life. Thirdly, I think this is not a, an individualistic thing. I don't think it's like this contract between David and God, where as long as David does the right things, God will sort it out for him. It will go away and then back on track again. I don't think that's how this is working. And then fourthly, that waiting point. Waiting is an active thing. It's a moment to refocus. It's a moment to learn. It's a moment to cry out and try and get that perspective and that liberating air to be able to breathe again. And you might be able to move the needle yourself because you get that. On the other hand, sometimes that's not the case. And I think that's the fantastic thing about being part of a community, isn't it? Sometimes you need other people to come and lift the needle up for you and move it on to the next track. And I think that's why this is not an individualistic thing. This is a corporate thing for all of us together to be able to lift the needle and stop the record skipping. So I'm pretty much going to stop there. But I think God desperately, desperately, desperately wants us to sing a new song. He talks in this song about singing a new song. I think perhaps God is trying to inject that liberating air into all of our lives that says, I know the record's skipping. I know it's painful. I'm in it with you. Is there a way in which we could sing a new song? So I'm going to stop there. Fortunately, this is a soundtrack to the summer, and this particular psalm has actually got a soundtrack that goes with it, written by U2. Um, so we're going to just listen to some of that U2 song. Um, it's got some of the words from the psalm. And I just encourage you in the next couple of minutes while we listen to it, what are the things in your life that you want to sing a new song about? Or perhaps what are the things that you could help somebody else that you know of to sing a new song about. So we're going to listen to the music. What are the things you want to sing a new song about in your life? How could you help other people to sing a new song? <laughs>